My dear wife is a great cook, and uh, she serves our family really, really well. Our uh, palates dance often, so that's good. And I love her chocolate cake with caramel icing. Oh, is it ever good. And uh, I got to tell you, though, if she made chocolate cake and had everything perfect, made the cake moist and rich, uh, layered the icing with flawlessness, created a cake that you could, you could picture on the cover of Bon Appetit magazine, but she failed to include sugar, it would be a complete waste. Cake and icing without sugar is a waste. So, if the best ingredients are used and everything was measured perfectly and the recipe followed perfectly, even if the cake looks exquisite, if it's missing the sugar, people don't want to eat that cake. It's amazing how one simple thing makes all the difference. John wrote, this best-selling book, in order to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to believe in Christ, and he wants you to find joy in Christ and everlasting life. John carefully crafted his book uh, with even haunting depictions of unbelief in order to draw you into the story to know and feel the tragedy and grief in the life of of Jesus Christ while seeing his resounding supremacy and how faithful he was to God's will. Even the darkness of unbelief serves to show you by contrast the brightness and the glory of the light of Christ. This message is similar to a movie. Uh, It begins with a uh, a tense first scene in an upper room at a very special dinner or supper, uh, depending on where you're from in the country maybe, the scene uh, leads into this flashback into the life of the one who betrayed Jesus. The flashback constructs a compelling backstory of the traitor's life, which adds chill to John 13. As the story unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that the traitor is missing something. Missing something vital. And I want you to ask yourself at the end, do I have the one thing that the traitor lacked? Do I have the one thing that the traitor was missing? The scene begins. Jesus knew the traitor and was disturbed. Jesus knew the traitor and was disturbed. The foot uh, washing or the feet washing rather ended. The disciples didn't understand the betrayal Jesus had predicted. And verse 21 says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was disturbed at the thought of being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus testified to his disciples what was absolutely certain. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Tough words to hear. But someone sitting around that table would betray the Son of God. One of his chosen twelve. Well, the response of the disciples is both remarkable and frightening. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They were at a loss. They were completely perplexed as to the identity of the traitor. 
Matthew said they were very sorrowful when they heard it was one of them. And they began to ask Jesus, is it I, Lord? Which was like saying, surely it's not I, Lord. Surely it's not me. Here's why their response was both remarkable and frightening. The traitor seemed just like the other 11 disciples. The traitor seemed just like all the other guys. Think about it. After years of ministry together, the traitor was indistinguishable. They weren't sitting there, well, it's obvious. We know who it is. It's him. Everyone knew that before. That's why he was always like sitting around in the shadows and grimacing and scowling to everybody. That's not how it was at all. A devil was among the 12. A devil who participated in the same Bible studies, prayer groups, theological discussions, just like the rest. There was no prime suspect. Verses 23 and 24, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. John identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved reclining on the chest of Jesus. Now, a man reclining on the chest of another man at dinner is a little bit uncomfortable for us. Can we just be honest about that? Uh, I don't frequently do that. I can't remember the last time. Um, Maybe messing around with my brother or something. I don't know. But first century Judaism... Uh, And Jewish dining dining customs were much different than they are today. First, uh, yeah, first century was different, entirely different context, and we can understand the customs a little bit when we bring ourselves back into the story and see that it was not uh, 21st century America. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, The Lord's Supper, which we're all probably familiar with, is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. The diners reclined on cushions at the table. They leaned on one side while they were eating, and they would pick their food with their free hand. So it would have been very natural for a man who was reclining to lean back into another. Simon Peter signaled to John. John leaned back against Jesus and and probably very discreetly, maybe in a whisper, asked, Lord, who is it? In a sense, I want to know, who is it? Only Jesus and the traitor knew. It's not always obvious who the sellouts are. A cake with no sugar can look really tasty from the outside. Only when you bite into it do you realize how bad it is. The key is the inside. The key is the inside. I watched a show a while back where atheist Darren Brown, I don't know if you know that name, he took an ordinary man, Darren Brown does different shows, and he took an ordinary man, and after just six months of training him with certain techniques and tricks, he turned him into an evangelical faith healer. And they held a special service, they had a band and everything, and a small crowd actually came to this, this thing. The guy was even slaying people in the spirit, as they call it, at this little service. It was a complete hoax, a complete hoax. And it appeared to some 
who were part of it to be very God-centered. It's easy to hoodwink people, but it's impossible to hoodwink God. The traitor played the part. Now, I'm not exactly sure how Jesus answered John, but it's likely he spoke discreetly as well. Verses 27 and 20 uh, through 29 seem to suggest that though Jesus revealed the identity of the traitor in the passage, the other disciples still don't really know what's going on. So maybe Jesus whispered back to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so Jesus dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. The traitor was Judas Iscariot. Now, if this were a movie, the camera would slowly trace the hand that had received the morsel from another and would zero in on an apprehensive and guilt-ridden face of Judas Iscariot. His eyes dark and piercing And filled with greed and treachery, then the flashback. And it would begin at the early life of Judas. And it would follow it through until the end. I have 37 quick snapshots from Judas's life. We'll hit them quickly. Number one, Judas was the son of Simon. Judas likely grew up in a normal Jewish family. His father was Simon. We don't know anything about his mother. He likely had brothers and sisters. Number two, Judas was Judean. Many scholars believe Iscariot means from Kiriath, which would put him in southern Judea. The other disciples, all of them, were from Galilee. Three, Judas chose, I'm sorry, Jesus chose Judas as one of his 12 disciples and apostles. Jesus chose Judas. He chose Judas, and Judas left his family and left whatever he had, and he followed Jesus. Think about that. Jesus selected Judas, but no doubt, Judas sacrificed much to go with Jesus. Something drew him in. Four, Judas spent years following Jesus. Jesus and Judas did a lot together. They traveled and lodged together, ate and talked together, celebrated Jewish feasts together, prayed and sang worship songs together. Jesus or Judas was mentored by Jesus. Five, when the crowds left uh, Jesus, Judas stayed. Judas stayed with Jesus. In John 6, if you remember, many of the disciples stopped walking with Jesus. They left Jesus. They didn't want to be with Jesus anymore. You know who stayed? Judas. Judas stayed. Six, for years, Judas listened to the teaching of Jesus. He heard Jesus speak truth with eloquence and with power and with effect. Judas was part of the Bible studies, and he was part of the private teaching sessions of Jesus. Judas was given unbelievable privilege to study under the best teacher that ever lived. Seven, Judas was astonished at the teaching of Jesus. He was astonished at the teaching of Jesus. When Jesus spoke of salvation in Mark 10, it says his disciples were exceedingly astonished. Hmm. Eight, Judas encountered the miracles of Jesus. 
from turning water into wine to feeding thousands to walking on water to calming the sea to the blind receiving sight to raising a dead man to life. Judas witnessed it all with his eyes. And nine, Judas believed in Jesus. After turning water into wine, John 2, 11 says, and his disciples believed in him. Believed in him. Judas, we got to get this straight, Judas never had saving faith, but he did have some level of intellectual or empirical belief in Jesus Christ. 10, Judas served Jesus and helped him in his ministry. Judas contributed. Um, Judas was actively involved. He was the treasurer of their itinerant ministry. He helped distribute food to thousands. He helped meet needs of people, practical needs. Number 11, Judas risked his life for Jesus. When people in Jerusalem wanted Jesus dead, Dangerous place to be. And Thomas said, if you'll remember, let us also go that we may die with him. Judas went back to Judea with them. He knew the risk, yet he didn't abandon Jesus to avoid peril. Get this, 12, Judas preached. Oh yes, Judas preached. Judas was an itinerant preacher. Luke 9, 2 says, Jesus sent the disciples out to proclaim, what did they proclaim? The kingdom of God. Judas proclaimed the kingdom of God. Number 13, Judas baptized people. Number 14, Jesus gave Judas authority to, and power to cast out demons and to perform miraculous healings. Isn't that amazing? Jesus sent Judas out with the others with power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons, as Matthew 10, 8 tells us. Judas did some incredible things in the name of Jesus Christ, powerful things, things that people were taken back by. Now, let's assume at this point that you have no idea how the story ends. At this point, would you describe Judas as nominal or middle of the road or as passionate and deeply committed to Christ? From the outside, I'd say he's pretty committed. Judas lived an extraordinary life. What his eyes saw and his ears heard and his hands touched, even what Jesus used Judas to accomplish was simply stunning. So please listen to this. I don't want you to miss this point. You need to get this. So many professing Christians think that they are saved, accepted by God, and going to heaven because of what they do or don't do. That bears repeating. So many professing Christians all over the place, Lancaster County loaded with them, think that they are saved, accepted by God, and going to heaven because of what they do or don't do. I go to church every Sunday. I don't drink. I was baptized. I haven't killed anyone. I'm better than that guy. I haven't been in jail. I've always tried to be a good person. I haven't left my wife. I teach Sunday school. Friends, no one, no one, is saved 
by what they do or don't do. No one is saved by what they do or don't do. Look at Judas. People are saved by what Christ has accomplished for them, which they receive by faith. Judas accomplished incredible things in the name of Jesus. He was a chosen apostle. He was a chosen disciple, and yet Jesus called him the son of destruction. Jesus called him a devil. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. Judas's life makes me think of Matthew 7, 22 and 23, where Jesus said, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You never had relationship with me, and you will perish because you didn't. None of us has the Christian credentials that Judas had. We just don't. But even if we did, unless we have the one thing that Judas didn't, if we don't have that one thing, even our best works are disgusting to God. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds, all of our best days, all of our good things are like a polluted garment. You know that polluted garment can actually mean dirty menstrual rags in the Hebrew. That's our best deeds. That's the best we have without this one thing. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung wrote, quote, the righteous deeds Isaiah has in mind are most likely the perfunctory rituals offered by Jesus without sincere faith and without wholehearted obedience. They look good, but were a sham, a literal smokescreen to cover up their unbelief and disobedience, end of quote. Judas's extraordinary life was a smokescreen to hide his unbelief and disobedience. Number 15, Judas acted like everyone else. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, no one pointed at Judas. 16, Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. 17, it was foreordained by God that Judas betray Jesus. It was foreordained, it was decreed, it was purposed by God that Judas betray Jesus. Judas didn't surprise Jesus somehow. Jesus saw it coming. Jesus knew the scripture and he knew from the very start that Jesus would, or Judas would fulfill that scripture. Check it out in Acts 1, 16 through 20 sometime. Look over that maybe this week. Number 18, Judas never truly believed in Jesus. He never truly believed. He had intellectual beliefs similar to what Satan and his demons have, but he never loved and trusted in Jesus. He never had saving faith. 19, Judas was a devil. That's what Jesus called him. 20, Judas was greedy. 
21, Judas was a skilled and clandestine thief. He stole money from Christ's ministry. Oh, man. 24, Satan possessed Judas. The man who at one time cast out demons from others had now become possessed by the prince of demons. 25, the devil planted the betrayal plot in Judas's heart. Oh, how Satan can use an unbelieving heart. 26, before the Last Supper, Judas conspired against Jesus with the chief priests and officers and contracted with them to betray him. Judas had the nerve to go to that supper in the upper room with all the disciples. Knowing what he had done, with a treacherous heart, he was willing to sit there at that supper and have Jesus, the Son of God, wash his feet. What a devious mask he wore that night. 27, Judas was not spiritually clean. Jesus said that Judas was never born of God or born of the Spirit or born again. His heart remained dirty and his heart remained dead. 28, the omniscient Christ washed Judas' feet. They both knew at that moment the conspiracy. Yet Jesus knelt at the feet of his betrayer and served him. Still, Judas's heart remained hard. 29, a morsel from Jesus confirmed that Judas was the traitor. Jesus was essentially the host of this supper, and Judas sat close in proximity to Jesus because Jesus dipped a morsel from a common bowl and he handed it to Judas. Now, it's possible, and that, that handing to Judas was a, a, was a gesture of honor. And so it's very possible that Judas was actually to the left of Jesus, which was in the place of honor. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. What a kind confirmation of a horrifying reality. 30, Judas deserted Jesus and the 12 during their last night together. He walked out. He missed so much. I mean, when you read the rest through chapter 17, Judas missed it because he walked out and he traded Jesus Christ for money. 31, Jesus allowed Judas to perish because it was the will of God. He allowed Judas to perish because it was the will of God for Judas to perish. And we might find that very hard to comprehend. But listen closely to the profound prayer of Jesus for his disciples in John 17, 12. They're still in the upper room. Judas had already left at this point. And Jesus prays this to God. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Isn't that great? His power was a keeping power. He kept them in the name of his father. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except. I didn't lose any God, except the son of destru destru okay. destruction, that 
the scripture might be fulfilled. Why was Judas lost? So that the scripture written many years before Judas would be fulfilled. It was the purpose of God. It was God's word and it would happen. 32. Judas cleverly betrayed Jesus and of all things with a kiss. He led the mob right to Jesus. He knew where Jesus would be and Judas shows up and he says, greetings, rabbi. And then he kissed him. 33. Jesus called Judas friend. After the infamous kiss, Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. 34, Judas lived a duplicitous life. He acted the part. 35, Judas was remorseful, but never repentant. He was remorseful, but never repentant. Let me ask you a good question. Do you know the difference between remorse and repentance. There's a big difference between those two things. Remorse is knowing that you have sinned, knowing that you've messed up, knowing that you are not perfect. Remorse is regret for doing something wrong, deep regret. But remorse doesn't necessarily derive from hatred of sin, love for Christ, and faith. Remorse is guilt. Remorse is shame with no definitive internal heart change. God doesn't call us to remorse. God calls us to repentance. Repentance is different. It's much more than remorse. It's much more than just, I feel really bad about what I did. It's way different than that. Repentance is God's grace producing a change of heart that inevitably results in a change of behavior. When the heart changes, the behavior changes with it. Repentance is hating your sin enough to forsake it, hating your sin enough to deny it, hating your sin enough to fight it and put it to death in your life as you trust in Christ to help you put it to death. John Calvin said this, True repentance is displeasure at sin arising out of fear and reverence for God and producing at the same time a love and desire of righteousness. That's spot on. I hate what I've done because I fear God and I know that he's powerful and I know what he does to people who turn against him. And yet I love and I desire righteousness. I love Christ. And so I want to turn from this terrible thing that I have done. I want to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to trust in him to give me power and to accept me because of his merits, not my own. Because I've made a royal mess of this. That's way, way, way different than remorse. Judas recognized his sin. Judas felt really bad about his sin. Judas had overwhelming remorse. Matthew 27, 3 and 4 say this. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, his final, what have I done? It says he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
I have sinned. I have betrayed the Son of God. Judas then threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he left. He was so grieved at what he had done, he returned the money that he once so, so desperately wanted and craved. I'll, I'll sell out Jesus, the Son of God, for this. He tossed it back into the temple, didn't want it anymore. And I think 2 Corinthians 7.10 explains the difference between remorse and repentance pretty well. It says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a way to be so deeply moved by your own sin and to hate it that it actually leads to death, not life. That's remorse without it being godly and centered in Jesus Christ. There are two kinds of grief, one that leads to Jesus, the other that leads to death. Worldly grief or remorse never produces true repentance. It only produces death. Judas had worldly grief. Judas had worldly remorse that never ended in him turning from his sin to Christ. Peter was similar to Judas. He denied Jesus three times, even wept bitterly after he had done it. And I think Peter inside probably felt very similar to Judas. But Peter had godly grief that produced repentance in him and led him to salvation in Christ. His sin drove him to Jesus, not to death. Peter repented of his sin and loved Jesus with his whole heart and trusted Christ to cleanse him of all unrighteousness, even denial three times. And Jesus restored Peter and used him to spread the gospel all over the world. Peter illustrates godly grief that leads to repentance or produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Judas illustrates worldly grief that produces death. 36, Jesus said it would have been better if Judas had never been born. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. In the last scene of the flashback, coins lay scattered on the temple floor as Judas flees to a field to hang himself. 37, Judas committed suicide. He killed himself. His unbelief was so dogged, so rigid, and his grief so stifling that for him, running to Jesus to plead for mercy and forgiveness was simply not an option. Incredulous pride drove Judas to suicide. He failed to believe that the grace and mercy and love of Jesus was sufficient to save even him. I read a devotional titled, A Tragic End for Judas, and it quoted Matthew Henry a guy I really respect that's been dead for hundreds of years, saying this, Some have said that Judas sinned more in despairing of the mercy of God than in betraying his master's blood. The devotional continued, Neither Judas's betrayal nor his suicide is the unforgivable sin. Only his refusal to seek the grace of Christ. Judas refused to seek the grace of Christ. 
He refused to turn to Jesus as the answer of his sin and problems and issue and all that he had done. That's really, really helpful. Judas lacked one essential thing. The, scene, uh, the scenes of, of Judas' life, they come to a close. The camera centers once again on the piercing and darkened eyes of Judas who had just received the morsel from Jesus. Years of unbelief and unrepentant sin left Judas vulnerable to the influence of Satan. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas was already primed for satanic influence, primed for possession by Satan because he didn't have one paramount thing. One paramount thing. His will coincided with the will of Satan because he lacked one paramount thing. His human nature aligned with Satan's nature because he lacked one paramount thing. Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Make haste, Judas. Make haste and go and turn me over to the authorities. Betray me, Judas. Make haste and betray me for money, for the time has come for me to depart from this world to the Father. Verses 28 and 29 show how confused the disciples were. It appears like none of the disciples knew what Judas was doing and what he would do. As the treasurer, would he buy some stuff for the feast? Well, that, that makes sense. Would he make a customary donation to the poor, which they often did uh, during the Passover? Well, maybe that's what he's doing. Jesus knew. Judas knew. And verse 30 says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And John added, And it was night. It was night. And what an interesting time to bring up darkness. Don't leave Judas. Don't leave that feast. Stay. Confess everything to Christ. Repent and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. Love and trust Jesus Christ more than money, Judas. Don't leave. Stay and take in the truth of the master. But he couldn't stay. He didn't have the heart Judas didn't have the heart. Are you curious about the one thing that Judas didn't have? The one paramount thing that he never had. Of all that Judas had, Judas never had the heart. He never had a regenerated heart, evidenced by true repentance, saving faith, love for Jesus, and obedience to God. Judas didn't have the heart. What is a regenerated heart? What does that even mean? It's a heart that Christ has made alive, spiritually alive. We once were dead in sin, and a regenerated heart is, I live in Christ. It's a heart born of God. It's a heart born again. It's having a new heart, a completely new heart. Not the old heart, not what you used to be, what you now are in Christ, a new heart. It's a heart that has been cleansed and washed completely clean by Christ. You can't get a regenerated heart by cleaning yourself up. 
You can't get a regenerated heart. You can't get a new heart by somehow doing something good or somehow, hey, I'll just let my good works outweigh my bad works. That won't change your heart. You may even be able to change outwardly what you do, but until your heart change changes, it's all a loss worth absolutely nothing to God. People, please hear this. Because I am just amazed at the amount of people who fall back on their own good works as the reason they're saved. You are not good. I am not good. What we do has no basis for our salvation. None whatsoever. You could serve the rest of your life if it's not done in the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, with a heart that has been changed. It's worthless. Completely worthless. Can you see it in the person of Judas? God gives a regenerated heart. God washes the heart. God cleans the heart. The human heart is dirty and it needs to be washed clean by Christ. Good deeds can't wash a dirty heart. Jesus said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I must wash you, Peter. I must give you a new heart. I must make you spiritually clean. Jesus washes the heart. Jesus never washed Judas's heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 fits this so perfectly, so perfectly. Just listen to what Ezekiel wrote many years before this upper room. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to to obey my rules. Judas never received a new heart from Jesus. Judas never received a new spirit. Judas's heart of stone had never been replaced by a heart of flesh. Judas had never received the Holy Spirit. God's grace never caused Judas to walk in obedience to God. Judas lacked the most important thing for any of us to have, a heart for Christ. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says it well, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is why we praise Jesus and not ourselves. Because He has made a way he has done it. Judas is a great case study. He's like the perfect guy for, uh, uh, to study for anyone who believes that they're saved by what they do or what they don't do. Just look at Judas. Look at what a, a spectacular life gets you without a heart for Christ. Son of destruction, 
a devil. When someone has a regenerated heart, a few things result in them. It comes from this heart. It grows. Uh, a regenerated heart bears fruit, and this is what it, it bears. True repentance, saving faith, love for Jesus, and obedience to God. A regenerated heart will yield these things, 100%. Or else it's not a regenerated heart if these things aren't there. Judas had none of these things because he didn't have a regenerated heart. He never turned from his sin. He never put his faith in Christ. He never loved Jesus. He never obeyed God. Those four critical things all fall in place when God gives someone a new heart. Romans 14, 23 shows why good works count for nothing without a heart for Christ. This is what it says. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now that's deep. Whatever does not proceed from faith, faith in Christ, is sin. Without faith in Christ, everything you do is sin. You're heaping judgment. Even if you help the little old lady across the street. Even if you give all of your investments to some charity. Without a faith in Christ, without faith in Christ all of that is sinful. Even works done in the name of Jesus are sinful without faith in Christ. It all boils down to one simple thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Judas didn't have the heart. And my question is, do you? Do you have the heart for Christ? Do you have the heart for Christ? Oh, Jerusalem, please have a heart for Christ. For Christ. Do you have the one thing that Judas never had? Do you have a heart for Christ? You can do a lot of things in the name of Jesus Christ, but without a heart for Christ, all of your life is in vain. It's like the cake. If you do everything just right, if you nail it, you live the best you can, you, you, you try to follow all the rules and, and you let your good works outweigh your bad works and from the outside, your life, a lot of people would say it's exemplary and, and, and you've nailed it. But without sugar, without a heart for Christ, all is lost. It's amazing how one thing One simple thing makes all the difference. You see, man looks at your outward appearance, but the Lord looks on your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so very clear. Wow, when we look at the life of Judas, it's eerie, it's haunting. It's such a dark moment in that upper room. When Judas was hanging around, oh, chilling. And when he left, things seemed to get a whole lot better. And Jesus said some amazing things that are coming in the, in the coming weeks. It's just wonderful, hope-inspired, loving, tender, and awesome things. And so John included this incredible betrayal and this treachery in Judas to communicate something to us that will somehow show us the light of Jesus by contrast and would point us to Christ as our only hope and would 
would have us, John would have us believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that we can have life in him, eternal life, if we believe. And may we look at Judas and say, I don't want that life. I, I want to believe. And I'm prone to be just like Judas if I do not have the grace of God awake in my heart and produce a regenerated heart to clean my heart so that I can believe in Jesus too and be cleaned. God, I pray that, that someone here today perhaps that has been exactly like Judas, they're living a, a good life from the outside, but maybe they don't believe in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you penetrate their heart with the gospel and regenerate them. Turn the lights on for them that they may see their sin and be grieved to repentance. Help them to turn from their sin and trust in the glorious Christ who can save them fully and completely from their sin that can restore them just like Peter. God, I I pray that we have a heart like Peter did, which is all by grace. So God, uh, thank you for being honest with us, for telling us what we need to hear. And I pray that this horrible tragedy of Judas would point us to the supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ, your son, who can save even the worst of sinners. Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. After all that time spent with him, wow. And God, we have betrayed you and we betrayed your son. But I pray that we're grieved by our sin into repentance, not remorse, but repentance, which includes a deep remorse, but it goes so much, much uh, farther than that. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us, grieve us of our sin, and may we have unbelievable joy in what Jesus Christ has done for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.